Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. And over the next few weeks, while we're between series, I'm sharing a few of the appearances I've made on other people's podcasts over the past few months. Today, you'll hear my conversation with John Gomez and Scott Allender on the Evolving Leader podcast. And as you'd expect, we talk about leadership and you'll hear my perspective on why building a great work culture starts with you designing a complementary relationship between your work and personal life. The psychoanalyst Josh Cohen describes burnout as a nervy compulsion to keep going despite exhaustion. Depending on the sector, between 15 to 40% of employees today are experiencing burnout symptoms, with younger people and women most affected. Estimates put the costs to the global economy close to $8 trillion. As well-being keeps coming to the top of the agenda of employees' concerns, what's the answer? In this show, we talk to Ollie Henderson, who is exploring his own journey to finding a better balance between the various demands in his life and sharing that in a number of ways to help others. We're sure that a lot of what he talks about will resonate with our listeners and perhaps help them to rethink their own path forward. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast, the show born from the belief that we need deeper, more committed, and more personal leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, along with my friend and colleague, Mr. John Gomes. John, how are you feeling today? I am feeling very upbeat today. I'm feeling energized at the end of the week. had a great week, feeling... um, like I really want to engage in the weekend and get some deep recovery. So how are you feeling, Scott? I'm feeling a mix. Um, I can't remember when we have this show slated for release, but we're recording at the end of the week where we had uh, a tragic school shooting here in the Nashville mm-hmm. area. And um, so I'm feeling sad. Uh, I'm feeling mad. Um, I'm feeling that we have a leadership failure in this country and it's an epidemic and it needs to be dealt with. And yeah, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot of things. Mm. Um, yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Seeing as it's very personal for you guys. It is, it is. And it just keeps happening in this country. So, uh, well, I don't know how we transition from that, but maybe we talk to somebody who is an expert in transitions, particularly career transitions. Um, our guest today is experienced founder and CEO, Ollie Henderson. Ollie believes, and I agree, that work-life balance is a myth. Rather than seeing career and personal life as two opposing forces, Ollie argues that the secret is to design an integrated approach that allows them to work in harmony. He is passionate about helping others, particularly those like him who have young children who he's warned us may come bursting in the door any minute um, and uh, develop the skills to manage time better. His new book is called Work-Life Flywheel, Harness the Work Revolution and Reimagine Your Career Without Fear. Ollie, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Welcome to the show, Ollie. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. It's... um... 
4 p.m. on a Friday here in London, but um, yeah, feeling good. So there's lots. There's a lot going on um, in in my life at the moment, and uh, my both my work life and my personal life. But it's the beginning of a two week school holiday, which means certainly in the <laughs> second week I get to take a little bit of time off, spend it with the kids, go and see some family, and uh, you know I recently haven't had very much time off so that is certainly something to get excited about nice well let's get to know you a little bit beyond your bio so let's say it is your birthday and you can invite any musical artist living or dead to play your party who are you inviting it's a party so i'd probably invite fella cootie so fella is um if you don't know a nigerian legend i mean legend gets thrown around a lot but in nigeria he is you know national hero national figure um both from a musical point of view but from politics as well he stood up to the military dictatorship during some really difficult years um in nigeria he also happened to be an incredible jazz musician he invented what you know became known as afrobeat and he it has probably pride a place in my record collection merely because while I was a very poor student, for some reason, and I'm still not quite sure why, I bought two limited edition box sets of vinyl of his, which must have cost me £50 each. So that's £100 I spent on two boxes of vinyl at a time where I was probably spending about £1.50 a day and eating pot noodles. So uh, that, <laughs> that, and, that, and that really opened my eyes to a completely new type of music, African music, and particularly African jazz. Um, so yeah, party, fella. Sounds that good. Sounds, sounds amazing. Mm. Can we come? Can you invite us to your party? <laughs> oh, please, please do. <laughs> it, it is actually my, it is my birthday in a few weeks. So you oh, know, nice. we're, we're just uh, jumping ahead there. So thank you for, the, thank you for that question. Well, I remember uh, buying one of his records in uh, in my first term at university. Um, so that that takes you right back to uh, the early eighties. Mm. So, Ollie, tell us a bit about your career today. You've been a founder and a CEO. Give us a whistle stop tour of your career to date. Sure. Well, I, I was mentioning before the show, I had dreams of working in the music business. Um, love music. I've always always had music around me, um, and I was super keen to do that then the reality of leaving university and having bills to pay um, meant it was it was tricky to do that. So I made the decision. I actually got a job at Bloomberg. So I, I, I speak yeah. a couple of languages reasonably well. English, I mean, English, I speak fluently, as you can tell. But um, I also speak German, a little bit of French. And Bloomberg at that time were really keen to hire foreign language speakers. So I did that. Wasn't really for me, so I left that that world and moved into marketing, specifically digital marketing. And that was actually, you know, when I was twenty five, and I met then my future business partner. We set up a, a company, which was a digital advertising agency, essentially. And to begin with, we were solving a problem in the music business. So we both worked around music, and this was kind of early days of YouTube. And at that time, it was really difficult to connect with or, uh, with audiences, with fans, and find a way to pay for your advertising in a performance-based way. So we kind of created a new way of doing it. And that was the business, essentially, which I ran for 10 coming up 11 years. Um, you know, lots of good times, lots of challenging times, you know, classic life of a, of a founder, an entrepreneur, I suppose. You know, we had learned a lot. I yeah, felt like I was winging it a lot of the time. Um, certainly, you know, learned loads of lessons about how to lead people and hire people and develop people. And they were the things, frankly, which I really loved about the job, particularly in the later years when, when you've been doing the same thing functionally for many years, it, you, you're looking for new challenges. And that, that really motivated me. But 
long story short, and we could talk about this a little bit more. At the end of 2019, I was coming up on 11 years and I just couldn't shake the feeling. And I didn't know what that feeling was, but I've subsequently realized I was burnt out and I'd been burnt out several times. And I always, I didn't really know what that word meant, actually. I think my assumption was it just meant exhausted and broken down, which to an extent it does. But if you look at the official definition of burnout from the World Health Organization, it also includes a couple of other things, one of which is cynicism about the job. Mm. And that that mm. characterized how I felt. I'd, even though everything seemingly was great and the people were great I worked with, I liked the challenge, I liked the clients, I just generally just felt, you know, pretty negative about what I was doing. And the last thing, there's the exhaustion, there's the cynicism. The last thing um, is a sense of diminished performance, essentially, a bit of detachment from, from what you're doing. And again, I just felt like I was no longer achieving my potential, fulfilling my potential. And I... I decided um, at the end of 2019, I needed to step away from that business. And I left that business in January 2020 without much of a plan, frankly. I didn't know what I was going to do. And that's when I started writing, really just trying to work out what I wanted to do next. And yeah, that that really changed the course of the last three years, changed my life, will change my life, of course, forever, because it's opened up so many new opportunities and got me thinking about work and life in a completely different way. So I just want to just unpack that a tiny bit because I think that's fascinating um, because trying to actually understand what you're feeling um, in this kind of boiling frog scenario that's mm-hmm. generated towards um, – it's difficult for a lot of people because, as you say, they're, 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 it's equated with feelings of exhaustion or fatigue or whatever, but it's much more multidimensional mm-hmm. than that because it, it creates then – a sense of resentment that you're not getting what you need that then can lead to a kind of mental form of cynicism of being critical about people and situations and opportunities yeah. and something you otherwise you know love which you clearly did and then that, that generates a feeling of indifference towards things that cycle as it played out what what kind of consequences did that have on your life the the major one and this is, I, I think, the root of why I explored this idea of work-life something. <laughs> mm. The root of it was that I never felt really like I was spending enough time at home, but nor did I feel like I was spending enough time at work. Mm. Um, and that was about, and I suppose if you boil it down, it's about professional efficacy. That's a bit of a you know, jargony word. But, you know, I just didn't feel like I was able to just perform at my best. Now, equally, like I'm quite a... You know, I think about these things a lot. You know, I'm quite a reflective person. And, you know, the reality of having three young kids is that you have to make sacrifices in many, many different ways. You know, not just in your work, in your relationship, with, you know, with a partner. You make sacrifices. You make sacrifices about seeing your friends. And, you know, you you can come to terms with that. that, that. But I think if you're an ambitious person, I think that the, the challenge is how do I find the right balance between work and life and I never found that balance I never found that balance and I thought I was doing something wrong and then I subsequently realized that nobody really has a balance there isn't a perfect equilibrium this perfect scenario where you 
get exactly the right balance between work and life. Actually, you know, often for many people, the two integrated. It, you know, work defines your identity. It's a positive yeah. thing. It could be a positive thing even when during those challenging times. And of course, when you've got three young kids, there are many challenging times, particularly when you hit a global pandemic and you've got a toddler and two school-age kids that you're having to try and homeschool. You know, all of these factors can often build up. And I think that's coming around to, I suppose, the, the point to answer your original question. I think this idea of balance, I think that's why it isn't, it's a notion which has got positive intentions, but unfortunately it can lead, and it certainly did for me and it has done for others I've spoken to, it can actually lead to a negative consequence despite its best intentions. So that's, um, you know, that, and actually when I talk about the writing, the first step for me was writing about how I wanted my life to be. What did I want that relationship between work and life to be? Because I didn't want it to be like it was before. That was the one thing I knew. I forget about what the job was that I was going to do, you know, what industry I worked in or what type of relationship I had to, with people. It was actually, what relationship do I want to have with my work? That was, the fer- that was the very first, that was the starting point for me writing. So take us through that process because you've you're coming through burnout. How long do you feel like you you were burnt out before you acknowledged it? So it's difficult to put an exact timeline on it because I don't feel like I was burnt out for say three years. I just mm. feel there were pockets of time in which it manifested itself more strongly than others, and I can trace back the cynicism part which you probably noticed I'm emphasizing that because frankly when you've got three young kids you're just exhausted all the time so it's kind of difficult to distinguish you know it's difficult to say I'm you know I'm working too hard because just life life is a challenge you have to push yourself some more but when I think back about the cynicism part which is unusual for me because I'm quite a positive person you know at least two or three years at least mm. two or three years. And there were certain wow. times which it was punctuated through those times or there were certain times that it felt stronger than others. Sure. So you're you're coming through that. You've made this choice to to quit mm. and and to focus on writing and to to find balance. And then a pandemic hits. So you know, take us through your writing process. You know, you've you've made this big life change. You're focused on writing, and now you're entering in an unprecedented event. What was the writing process? What was the learning? Just take us there. Yeah. So I mean, I think back. I, I've managed. I, I signed the deal to leave the, my company in January 2020. You know, not long after that, I was already getting itchy feet thinking, you know, I need to, I feel like doing something here. I've had a, had a few weeks to just unpack it. I mean, actually, it'd been a few months before that, even where I'd sort of been mm-hmm. a, a, away from the business. So I, I saw a friend and he'd been through a similar experience and just said, look, write about, well, write about what's happening now. Because, you know, if you start another company, which was always my intention, in 10 years, you won't remember anything about how this thing started. Just write about it. So I started writing in February 2020 and was writing about the work-life intersection. And of course, as you said, a month later, the world turned upside down. Everybody was really forced to think about this work-life thing. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect timing in a way. And I just, I began writing online. Nobody really read it to begin with, but enough people had read it to keep me going. So I had about 20 people, mostly who were dads with young kids also, who'd kind of get in touch saying, I've you know, this resonates with me, you know, the sound in a similar stage to you, to you are, you know, you are in life and my career. And then I flipped that into a newsletter, at, you know, this is probably May, beginning of May 2020, and just kept going. So, you know, just kept writing, exploring ideas. Meanwhile, I had also agreed to become interim CEO of a, 
of a, a, a data and technology consultancy, which is, as you can imagine, fun timing um, during the pand- <laughs> early days of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, and um, but I carried on writing, turned that into a podcast a few months later. That podcast did, you know, both the newsletter and the podcast did pretty well. Then I got my book deal the following October. So this is 2021. And then, yeah, the book came out in January. So, you know, while I um, often, you know, obviously appearing on podcasts or being interviewed for, for different things, people describe me as a writer and an author. That still feels very strange to me, by the way. I mean, I certainly do write consistently. I write a lot. But I don't know if I wrap up my identity in any one description actually anymore. I think mm-hmm. that's the big change for me. So I'm, I am, a, I write, but I'm not sure I'm a writer, although maybe I'm a writer, but I'm also a founder. Uh, I think I'm an advisor to different companies. I've been a consultant, um, you know, and I, but, it, but equally beyond the work, I just tend to think of myself as, you know, a partner, a dad, uh, you know, I think that's one thing I've, I've changed. You know, mm. I always had this very fixed identity. You know, I was a, mm. I, I, I ran a digital advertising agency. Whereas now it's somebody says, what do you do? And that's a really hard question for me to answer. Mm. Maybe part of um, this, trying to find this different way of thinking about, about work and life is that realization that you have these multiple dimensions to your identity and that, that they are always moving in and out of phase and so on, rather than this very tightly held, I'm a founder or I'm a mm-hmm. financial director or something mm. like that, which is a lot of people's identity. And they can't let go of that when they go home either. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're thinking about identity. It's really important. And, you know, the reason I put fear in the subtitle of my book is because I'd spoke, spoken to a lot of people and many of them wanted to make changes to their lives. So I, I spoke to hundreds of people. I surveyed over 4,000 people for my book. And three quarters of people said that they were wanting to make big changes, big changes to their work lives. And yet very few are necessarily doing it. Now, of course, we were all forced to make some change and flexibility in the way we work has been a really positive thing, I think, generally, although you know the, the dust's still settling on that. But many people want to make further changes but they never actually get started and actually what it comes down to very often is fear and there is very the different aspects to that when you unpick it but identity is one of them uh, a fear that you'll lose your identity so mm-hmm. for me you know i had a i was running a successful business i had a you know you know i was financially doing well i was you know i had a certain um, you know, people knew what I did, and it, I, I suppose it was something to be proud of. And of course, as soon as you give that all up and you've got to reestablish your identity, you know, that's that can be you know quite a scary thing. So that fear is wrapped up in different factors, financial as as well as identical, and, and and that sort of you know that that desire, I suppose, socially to feel like you've got a certain status. Um, so actually, getting over that fear is the very first step. I think, to even taking any action at all. Um, so it's an interesting idea. And, and by the way, in terms of what I've realized, this is what's been really fascinating for me. And I suppose I've brought some of these lessons into the work that I've done as a, a CEO at, you know, at the, the company I was running, but also subsequently to the work I do advising businesses and working with leaders. Of course, you, reflecting on this for yourself is important, absolutely critical. But everybody is experiencing these these feelings and you know we we are undergoing the greatest work-life revolution in history in terms of the sheer number of people who are rethinking the way that they work and their relationship work we've never seen anything like it at the scale we're seeing it and I think from a, a leader's point of view understanding that that's happening and allowing people 
to express that feeling to them and try and help them design a new way to think about it, I think it's really key. I think it's one of the most important skills that people should be focusing on. Because if you can if you can do that, I think then you unlock very many other possibilities. And I think, But the first step is just acknowledging it and providing a space for people to do it. And that's something I've learned. And I wish I'd, I wish I'd known that before. But of course, you only, ever, you only learn these things through experiencing them. So it's been an interesting can we, lesson. Can we back up just a second, though? Because I, I love all of this. There's a lot to unpack here. So people are afraid to make changes. Their identity sure. is, is too wrapped up. Um, and before we carry on with the sort of workplace revolution, that, that statistic that 75% of people are wanting to make big changes to their work lives. What did you find there? Why is that happening? What's the, is there a common thread of what, what was motivating the desire to change, even if there was too much fear to enact it? Mm. I mean, bear in mind, there are many factors which which you might change about your work life. One of which is the location that you're living in and that you're working in, the way in which you're spending your time during the day. You know, is that you know, going into an office? Is it commuting? And by the way, the automatic automatic assumption is to think that people just want to spend less time traveling into the office and of course as we know it differs every individual it's for different you know for, for some people mm-hmm. that uh, you know I, I i did this research mid-pandemic for some people it meant having more connection with other people um but the, but there was a there were certain trends there were certain trends and I'll, I'll just highlight those because um rather than go through the whole data set but you know flexibility was one you know mo- mm. most people want flexibility and actually what they really mean by that is autonomy Right. They mean autonomy to make decisions, not just about where they work. That's one dimension. When they work is another dimension. That's that's kind of second. And I think we're slowly starting to understand that that's possible. I think, the, you know, the, this the hybrid debate is all focused on the where. But the, the when is now beginning to feel a bit more realistic. But also a really interesting one is who people work with. Yeah, that's that. You know, that people want having autonomy over who we work with is really is really important. And I suppose that flexibility point's key. And I think, and th- I think looking forward to the future. And this has been again, I don't want to jump around too much, but this is an interesting thought for the future. I think what technology and distributed work and a more global marketplace is unlocking is the ability to have more autonomy over whom we work with. You know, so rather than just being having to work with those located in a 50 mile radius of the office, suddenly we have possibility to work with people anywhere in the world. Mm. And, you know, while some for some, that's a crazy idea and a really difficult idea to wrap their head around. So I think for others, it's you know, here's an opportunity to actually have choice over the way and the, the dynamic with which we work with businesses and other people and just frankly the opportunity to work with people who share the same values and share the same ambitions so so yeah so i think flexibility but that leads into autonomy and autonomy not just over where but when and with whom we work hmm. so in, in i'm interested in the data that you collected because clearly when you're having kids that is an extraordinary pressure point and it can tip a lot of people into lots of different you know, ways of thinking about how they, they manage their lives. But did you, did you talk to older people? Because there's obviously now a, a large focus on trying to get older people into the workforce mm. again, particularly in the UK, but I'm sure in other areas, how we can motivate those people. And the, the aspects of autonomy and social connection mm. and so on seem very relevant to that conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, um, I suppose, the quantitative side of the research, the, the 4,000 plus people I surveyed, actually, there's a pretty even distribution across working age from sort of 20 to probably late mid 50s. There was an even distribution. Mm. So, you know, I certainly had responses from people who are slightly older, but certainly mid 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 50s was the kind of top end. Well, look, here's here's the the, the general, the high level thing, which is another positive. I think is that there's been various. Well, COVID has been a catalyst for provoking people to think differently about work in many different ways. And one conversation which you know some were having beforehand, but now I think has picked up in pace and and probably legitimacy as well, is the fact that as people live older, as as people live longer rather, it's perfectly normal for people to work longer as well and actually that opens up possibilities it doesn't always need to be a negative now of course i am generalizing here because you have to you know if some very physically demanding careers you know the, the reality of working longer isn't it's not possible you know i think there's a, when the physical strain is put on the body sometimes it's more difficult to you know to sustain that career but of course then there's other you know the the point here is that careers are evolving and the requirements in society and life for different types of jobs are also rapidly evolving so who knows what type of careers are available to people but let's just assume thought experiment people are living longer and maybe instead of retiring at say average on 60 let's push it out to 75 this is the extreme example well most people think oh my god that sounds like an absolute nightmare but there are very many of us who don't actually view it as such now that the, the do we want to work 40 50 hours a week every week until we're 75 probably not but if we rethink now what work could look like for the remainder of our career because we're going to be working longer then actually it opens up a lot of possibility for life to be more enjoyable so less pressure to earn that money now so that we can retire early um you know mm-hmm. so we've got 30 you know if I'm, I'm turning 40 next month you know if, if i work till i'm 75 which is completely feasible that's 35 years that i have uh, the possibility to earn money so rather than retiring in 20 years and then living for another 20 years you know that takes the pressure off there but it, what it also opens up the opportunity to do is more freedom with time and i think you know linda gratton um who you may know who's a really good you know, great business yeah, she thinker. Came on the show yeah she's she's been on my show as well and she's fantastic i mean really um value her work and really value her thinking and she talks about this idea of the multi-stage life replacing the three-stage life. And I'm a massive advocate, a massive advocate of this um, because, you know, a three-stage life of education, work, retirement, you know, that isn't a realistic representation of the future and the reality of now, actually, for, for a lot of people. Um, you know, and w- w- here, here, let me lay out a scenario again. You know, rather than us, edu- you know, being in education until, say, 21 then working until we're 60 and then retiring and, you know, dying when we're 80, let's say. What about if actually we rethought our relationship with education and work? So every few years we were spending some time on a sabbatical and spending some more time learning. But along the way, it's punctuated by many upskilling in many different areas, which, of course, mm. given how quickly the marketplace is evolving kind of makes sense um and and therefore then it just that 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 connection between work and life almost there's less friction there's less pressure between it because you're saying look here's an opportunity for life and work to fit together better because we can elongate it and there's just more opportunity to um you know design it in a way which is um 
I suppose you're just putting less strain on. And I think that's the thing. I think when you, you, we have this system and this sort of mental framework, we said you've just got to work, 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 so you've got enough money to retire. And then what do, what do people do when they retire? Well, many people are looking for something else to do and volunteering. And, you know, in some cases, my dad went back to, he retired about three times and he's been going back to work every time because he's <laughs> bored out of, his, out of his mind. And it's great for him because he needs that mental stimulus. So anyway, I mean, it's a very long way of saying... I think this idea, um, thinking differently about the way we're designing our life doesn't just need to mean day to day. It can also mean thinking about the future as well. Hmm. I suspect you're just making a justified case to buy more of those box sets, aren't you, Ollie, to your wife? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'll be be paying for this over the much longer term. So, uh, yes. Hi, this is Emma Sinclair, business psychologist, occasional co-host and fan of the Evolving Leader podcast. Did you know that we also have an Evolving Leader YouTube channel where we upload snippets from many of the podcast episodes? It's a visual feast of leadership goodness. Just go to YouTube, search for the Evolving Leader, subscribe, like and comment. Now, back to the conversation. So, you know, we've had lots of guests coming on talking about various um, aspects of innovation and that organizations are, are struggle really to organize people and create cultures that are innovative. Um, particularly now we've got a lot of pressures for people who are questioning what they're doing and this whole way of reorganizing ourselves in a hybrid environment. Is there anything you've learned about how we can get people to bring more of their creative innovative self into the environment of the working well into our working environments when i think about innovation i think about experimentation and the willingness to experiment um, mm. and of course you know, there, there are many flavors of innovation and but just as a sort of cultural thing you know i think those companies that you'd consider to be the most innovative are those that have the classic characteristics like psychological safety the ability to fail and feel like failing is okay and these become cliches in a sense you know that idea that it's you know fail fast um but actually what what i think about it is more you know fail fast learn fast you know those the, the the companies that are focusing on yeah it's okay to fail and actually in some cases celebrate and i'll give you an example of how how you actually practically might do that in a moment um uh, are really important but actually it's the learning part of it which fits in as well and again innovation is about iteration and iteration is about learning from what went well and what didn't go well and then improving upon it and just constantly feeling like things are in motion and i think that again um that that, that's a really important characteristic so here's one really interesting way which i've implemented myself um around um, experimentation and failing so you know i'm sure most people listening to this will do some variant of a stand-up or a monday morning meeting say where we say okay well you know tell me some of your highlights from last week tell me some of the challenges um and and the easiest thing in in the world to do is just be constantly reframing those challenges as a lesson learned and actually picking on that lesson learned and celebrating it just as much as the wins now that feels quite challenging at first because you know you think we want to be a a winning culture and people talk about being a winning culture you know success 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 Mm. but actually you know (laughs) 
anybody who's been around any sort of innovative culture realizes that that it, the, the story in hindsight might be painted as you know this grand plan and you know success was always destined but look into the details and and and, and also reflect on those details and mm. you know th- this isn't something we do a l- very much of reflection because life moves too quickly but constantly reflecting on the things which aren't going well are just as valuable as those less the, the things that do go well so actually literally saying look we have a rule now that in our monday morning meetings or our stand-ups we are literally going to celebrate the the mistake that was made or the the you know the, the problem that arose as long as we we can say what we're going to do about it and here's my solution here's what i've learned from it and here's how i'm going to put it into practice and i think if you, and, I've, and i've done this over the last couple of years far more than i did before and again people start feeling quite relaxed about it and it doesn't mean that you don't have high standards it's quite the opposite, actually. It, it begins people that really recognizing when things go well. Um, you know, that, that's very important. But, but it, it's impossible to innovate well unless you're willing to experiment. And it's, and it's difficult to experiment if you fear that experiment going wrong. So that's just, a, you know, my general thinking about innovation. And it tends to play out if you look at any of the success stories, either on a micro level within businesses or, you know, look at the most successful innovative companies over the past 10, 20, 100 years. Hmm. Let's come full circle back to your three-year burnout that birthed this book. So it makes so much sense to me, and I agree wholeheartedly with everything you're saying about balance, work-life balance. What have you adopted as practices, or have you adopted practices, to pay closer attention to what you're feeling and experiencing inside so that you don't find yourself going through another three-year burnout before you might acknowledge it and or somebody else that might be listening to you saying am i burned out i don't i don't quite know how do i connect with what's really going on mm. is, is there is there a practice or or practices you've put into place to connect to those emotional experiences uh, the without doubt most effective practice i've adopted is journaling and mm. uh, micro journaling you might characterize it as although i do a combination of the two so uh, i'll explain how i do it um so for me journaling can mean in the morning waking up uh, and bear in mind if my four-year-old wakes up uh, before me it's difficult sometimes to fit all of this in (laughs) Um, but in i do well i work up very early um get up early on my own um try and meditate if i can but again it doesn't always happen and again Mm -hmm. Don't put too much pressure on myself to to make these stick to this exact routine, and then just sit down and and just dump my thoughts out of my head for ten minutes. Mm. Um, and I find that incredibly useful to expunge many negative feelings in my head, but also sometimes have breakthroughs around insights about things. You know, it's amazing when you write stuff down what comes mm. what comes what comes out. And actually, free writing is an incredible way to do that as well by the way which is i suppose a form of journaling and and the way i think about free writing is a train of thought which can jump any number of times to any possible eventuality and to any memory um and again that's unlocked some amazing insights and ideas where i've tapped into memories from my past i'd forgotten about so those two are kind of longer form journaling i'm a great advocate and fan of that and one of the bits of research that really stood out for me a few years ago when I was looking at, um, you know, when, when we, because senior people don't write things down anymore. Mm. <laughs> they either believe they can remember it or someone else will write it for them. 
and then they'll get it played back. But the problem is that we, we forget more than we remember. And when we write things down, the, the motor control centers in our brain that deeply embed information into our memory work. And that's what writing was about, you know, it's actually created that mind-body connection. And we, we break that. Even, and it doesn't work so well when we type because the typing is not necessarily the same thing. Um, so writing actually helps us to remember things in a very, very powerful way. Mm-hmm. And I'm a great fan of that. Yeah. Mm. But here's the, here's the thing which has really completely changed my life and why I talk about it as much as I possibly can. So at the end of every day, um, typically when I go to bed, but again, it, it might be earlier on if I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be getting to bed late, I sit down and I note down three things about my workday and then one thing about my personal life. And the three things about my workday, I, I proceed it with kind of a general thought. So it might be today was a challenge to get started but do you know what? By the end, I felt good about it. And then what three specific highlights? So today's maybe really enjoyed my conversation on the Evolving Leader podcast. We discussed this, this, and this. Number two, finally managed to create a plan for a video strategy. Here's what I did about it. And number three, you know, it has been a great week and I'm really glad to have agreed this contract with XYZ. Now I do that every single weekday. And mm-hmm. Here's, a, here's why it's great. It shows me progress I'm making and it highlights things that I like doing. And I know this sounds really, really simple and basic, but when I consistently see things that I like doing, I do more of them. And that is a significant factor in helping me choose the right path. And, the, you know, the thing like purpose, can, can, they're... they're they're kind of loaded, I think, for a lot of people. When you talk about values and purpose, it's, it, I think it feels like a big deal that, you know, how am I possibly going to find my purpose? Mm. But I sort of reframed it. I now think about purpose as just doing the things that I'm naturally drawn to. And yeah, okay, I mean, I certainly write, I've written, I went for a process of writing down my values and making sure I stick to them. So, you know, things are important to me are autonomy creativity curiosity growth and living life with a sense of humor they're like the five things i wrote down early in this journey if you like and and i try and live my life by sticking to those but but that practice of writing a few things down just demonstrates to me the things i'm enjoying doing and i do try and do more of it so that's my that's the work stuff and it's incredibly insightful that by the way and and i'm and i don't just advocate doing that from a personal point of view i think it can really be valuable to incorporate that into knowledge sharing within teams as well and within businesses because you get some amazing i'm not saying you have to share i'm not saying you have to share every single thing you write down with your boss or your team but it's amazing that you start seeing when you share this among other people in your team, you, you say, oh, I didn't realize, I hadn't realized that that's the thing that you've been celebrating this week. Or mm-hmm. I hadn't realized, actually, I knew you were working on that project. Now I understand it better. So that's really useful. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the kind of what, the career stuff. But there's another practice which I've been doing for a few years, which is literally writing down one memory worthy, one noteworthy thing that's happened in my personal life. And I do that, and, and you know, Often it's something funny one of the kids has said or some, you know, it's simple stuff. Often, I mean, it, 
amazing number of things are related to reading the kids' bedtime story and a funny conversation we've had. I mean, literally 10% of them are. But that demonstrates for me what I like doing and I need to make sure I make time for it. Mm. Um, so the, and, I, and again, I've been doing this for a few years now and it's had a few effects. I mean, all of this process had a few effects of reducing my stress because I think it's like decompress before sleep. You know, I, I just get it all out. It certainly helps me see my progress on the career side. But the other thing it's done is significantly improve my memory. And that sounds like a, again, I mean, it's like, well, how's that possible? Well, the the, the thing is, life just passes by so quickly. And when you log these moments in time, specifically by writing it down, it logs it in your brain. And, you know, suddenly you can distinguish between things that are happening. And, of course, the beauty of it is, and I've, you know, I've begun digitizing this experience, um, is that you can be reminded of moments that happened which would have faded forever into your memory and you permanently store these things. So so your question was, you know, how, how do I make sure it doesn't happen again? You know, who knows? You know, I, I, I think you can never... I think you always need to be reflective and I think you can think that you're on the right path and make mistakes along the way. I mean, I'm not, by no means am I getting this you know perfectly correct you know I, I still beat myself up about various things whether it's to do with the kids or work or whatever else but I feel now by building this specific practice around journaling and micro journaling it's just unlocking incredible insights for me and just making me feel differently about work and life in general I mean, I'll ask you a question I mean you know you are working in a very large organization very complex organization with many different types of people all around the world I mean how much are people talking about this relationship between their work and their personal life? You know, is, is, is it something that's significant or now we sort of, you know, reverting back to the, how things were before the pandemic and, you know, business as usual? I mean, I talk about it with leaders frequently. Um, it's a focus of mine. I know John is, 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 uh, you know, we focus a lot on, uh, mindset and, um, well-being and, you know, connecting all parts of ourselves. I, I wholeheartedly um, believe that we bring our whole selves to work in every part of our lives and we either do it consciously or we do it unconsciously. Um, and when we do it consciously, meaning that we're connected to you know what we're feeling, what we're seeing, what we're thinking, we can be very intentional and when we're not, um, we're reactionary. So I, I think mm-hmm. it's still a, a big, a huge focus um, for me in terms of the the awareness piece. I think different organizations, it seems, are kind of taking different positions now in in work structure, right, in terms of how much autonomy people will continue to have in the choice to work from home or if they need to be in the office a certain amount of days. Many companies obviously still completely shut down, 100% remote. Some are, are sort of mandating back to office. Some are hybrid. John works with many organizations. John, what are you seeing? I think it oscillates between this, um, like the problem of people burning out, leaving, not producing the results the organization wants, and the company recognizing they've got a problem and do something on well-being and you know, try to, to rethink the, the, the kind of policies and practices of the organization. And then um, at some point, in, there's a cycle that where it flips and people go, we can't let people do all of this stuff. And then it goes back to um, uh, you know, tightening the reins around stuff. And I think what that really underlines is that it's still seen as policy and almost benefits to people as opposed to what you're talking about 
I think, Ollie, which is about how humans create value in the world. Yeah. And that well-being isn't a separate thing. It's just mm-hmm. a way in which you optimize for people to, to produce worth. Yeah. And if you look at it like that as a sort of superficial expedient stuff and, and it's just policy, then it is keep, it will keep on going through this either-or. It's either this, it's either the company, or it's the individual. And, and that either-or just like destroys destroys all the investment you placed into it because people then don't believe in it. They resent it. And so it doesn't matter. And it becomes a bottomless pit. You have to keep on giving yeah. people more and more of this stuff. And then mm. at some point, you have to take it away again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll leave you with uh, another stat, which was a really interesting, if slightly worrying statistic which i found in in the research and actually i've subsequently you know researched it and thought you know is this is this true can this be true and found it evidenced in other areas as well which is that nine in ten people said they weren't fulfilling their potential Mm. and and again there's loads of nuance to this and I'm, I'm, i'm i'm you know it's difficult for me to break it this this down but you know what does you talk about high performance cultures in businesses which you know most businesses would strive for that and you break down what high performance means and it's kind of getting the very best out of yourself in the situation that you're in. And how do you get the best out of yourself? Typically, it's something that you enjoy doing and feel rewarded in and feel like you're making progress in. These are the sort of, you break it down to the basic level. And, and I suppose what, you know, what, what I'm advocating in the book is to think intentionally about this from a personal point of view, but also by extension, how the people you work with think about this as well. And, and, you know, I break it down into this model, into these six areas, which kind of, I think they seem obvious. (laughs) When I'm going to tell you these six, they seem obvious. But I think the, the, the kind of best ideas are aren't obvious before but obvious after and these are these six characteristics which i now kind of live my life by design my life in order to try and avoid that burnout but also try and fulfill my potential and perform at my best and essentially it breaks down like this you know it is about mindset it's about understanding what really matters to you what do you prioritize where do you want to spend your time what do you value it's about being creative and i think this is undervalued i think being creative and having some aspect of creativity in your life and it can mean many different things but um you know being able to tell the story about what matters in your life and in what ma- you know what you've done in your career and, and I think that's really key. So there's mindset and creativity. There's the experimentation piece, which I mentioned. The ability to feel like you can experiment and the things don't have to go right all the time, but by constantly experimenting, you're very often moving forward. And then the last few, which I think you'll recognise, is about one's about community. You know what we have realised over the past few years is yes, it's great having more independence and autonomy and i personally love working from home but i also want to feel part of community and communities come to mean something different for me it used to mean for, from a work point of view being in an office with people and now it means something very different and i think from looking forward that's a huge opportunity that's where the world's completely changed and people should embrace it that's that that's the that's the biggest mindset shift i think people can have and the last couple of things um learning people people want to constantly learn and i think that feeling of progress in your in in your life and that is certainly how many people you know think about whether they're happy in their careers is feeling like they're progressing is about constantly learning and following your curiosity and and if you do all of that and you stop and you reflect consistently 
that's when you get breakthroughs and that's the final sort of part of this flywheel model and you know when you feel like you were having breakthroughs and you're moving forward then your mindset's reinforced and you can start making better decisions so you know i think fundamentally that way of thinking and just emphasizing the fact that work and life can fit together they can work in harmony and you get it right and you start feeling a sense of momentum and i think you know that's often how we as individuals but how we also want to lead others um i think Mm. that's really key to it Mm. ollie the book is work life flywheel where can people find it and where can people find you i mean any 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 decent bookshop online or in person you'll find the book um best place to find me i mean i'm on linkedin always welcome people connecting with me on on linkedin and i share a lot of the work that i do on there um my podcast and newsletter are called future work life um and as i said yeah anybody interested in any of the themes we discussed please get in touch i I love hearing people's you know experience and about what's happening um out there and i often write about it you know i'm having so many conversations with people um and i try and reflect that in the writing that i do every every week so um yeah thanks very much for inviting me on been a really Mm, really enjoyable conversation and um look forward to collaborating with you and, and people who get in touch in the future Thank you, Ollie. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ollie. And until next time, folks, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?